We're doing baptisms tonight. I thought it would be appropriate to preach on the topic of, of baptism. I, I'm not one for a topical sermon. You guys know that if you know me, I, I don't like them at all, but um, not my preference. And we will be starting 3 John in, in September, so some of you are like, oh, he's going topical. One summer away. <laughs> all right, we're out of here. Um, but I, uh, I wanted to preach on the aspect of baptism tonight. Could have chose a lot of different texts. There was one that I, I thought uh, I'd go with. My text tonight is from Colossians chapter 2, 11 to 12. Colossians 2, 11 to 12. It says this. It says, In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. By putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith. And that's a really important phrase. In which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. Merit, let that marinate for a second. So some of you are looking at this text and you're like, I thought Joe said we're going to talk about baptism because this seems like at least half of it is about circumcision. So we're going to talk about circumcision or baptism? My answer is yes, we are going to talk about those things. That was kind of a strange thing, right? Yet circumcision and then baptism. In our, in our English Bibles, there's not even a period between verse 11 and 12. It's just like this ongoing thought process for Paul. Like he doesn't see any problem just continuing this thought. And I think what it is going to reveal to us is that these two are linked pretty darn close together. And so I want us to have a good understanding of circumcision and understand how it may relate to to baptism as we try to squeeze this text for all it's worth. So, Every Jewish boy would be circumcised the eighth day after his birth, Leviticus 12, 2-3. It was a sign, an outward sign, that he was a part of the covenant people of God, Genesis 17, 10-14. There were two kind of schools of thought when it came to circumcision. One was that it was enough. It was enough for individual salvation. Obviously, that view was wrong and corrected by the Apostle Paul throughout the book of Romans. When he says in Romans chapter 9, 6, For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. So Paul comes in Romans 9, he says, let me just be clear, just because you're ethnically Israel doesn't matter whatsoever if you're not spiritually descended from Abraham. He goes on to say in Romans 2, 25 and 28, on this aspect of circumcision, he says, for circumcision is of value if you obey the law. And that's a problem because if any of you have ever gone to even one Sunday school, you know that we break the law. We know for all have sinned and fallen short of God's glory. So it's a value if you obey the law, but if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision Romans 2.28, for no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, 
nor is circumcision outward and physical. A strange thing to say. Circumcision is not outward and physical. Pretty sure circumcision is outward and physical. Yet Paul says, nope, it's not. It's not. He goes on to illustrate this metaphor, because he's, he's speaking very metaphorically, not literally, of circumcision, and he, he tells the story about Abraham, spiritual ancestor in Romans 4.11, uncommenting on when Abraham received the sign of circumcision. He says, he, Abraham, this is Romans 4.11, it says, he received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised so that righteousness would be counted to them as well. Abraham was not circumcised until many years after he believed and the Lord counted his belief, his faith as righteous. Paul is trying to make very clear here that Abraham's circumcision, it was an outward sign. It was an outward sign that followed an inward change. An outward sign of a heart that had already been made righteous by faith. Some of you are like, that sounds really similar to, what is that thing? It's baptism. Sounds kind of right. An, an outward change. This, 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 this outward sign of a heart already made righteous by faith. That's what P- Paul is trying to explain here in Romans four eleven. So that's a little bit of background on, on on circumcision. So now we jump into the text, Colossians two eleven. Now keep in mind in Colossae, and I, I'm, I'm dropping you guys into this book with the most minimal of background information, and I love historical background information. So in Colossae, uh, like so many of Paul's writings, he is coming to correct them because they're messing up. They're, they're doing things they shouldn't be doing, whatever. So they have this insistence on, on doing all these things. Right? They, they're saying, you need to observe these certain festival days, ignore, or observe these ones, make sure you eat these foods, don't eat these foods, you need to worship angels. It's weird, but okay, um, do this, don't do this. Be circumcised, don't do this. This is, this is their mentality, and somehow that's going to please God. So that's a little bit of background. So Paul comes here and he says, in him also... You were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. And I'm reading this, I'm thinking, maybe some of those people, they're there, they're hearing Paul say this, right? They're having the people there in the community be like, you need to get circumcised. And Paul comes, he's like, hey, I got an announcement I want to make. There's a, there's a type of cir- circumcision that you make without hands. And I don't know, I'm, I'm thinking, I'm like, yeah, I don't want to sign up for that. That seems risky. Um, I don't know, that's, whew. And Paul's like, no, 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 no. He's saying, this circumcision has already been done. It's already been done. Notice in the text in in verse 11, in him also you were circumcised. Past tense. It's already happened. Maybe some of those those guys in Colossians are like, it's already happened? Pretty sure I know if if, if it already took place. Uh, Paul's, no, 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 no. Like I'm, I'm speaking of spiritual realities that have already occurred in the lives of the redeemed, the people of God. Once again, he's speaking very metaphorically of this, this thing of circumcision. And in case you're wondering, well, did anybody talk about 
circumcision in this way prior to Paul? The answer is yes. It was already being used as metaphorically in the Old Testament. Deuteronomy 10.16. Deuteronomy 36. Jeremiah 4.4. When Moses calls the people to circumcise your hearts, repent of your sins, quit resisting God. Quit disobeying God. And of course, Paul in Romans 2, 28 and 29, he, he uses and speaks of this thing, circumcision, metaphorically. When he says, for no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. Yet we're like, it is. But he's like, no, it's not. But a Jew is one inwardly. And circumcision is a matter of the heart. By the Spirit. Not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. You may remember in John 8, Jesus is having a conversation. It's the famous, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free passage. Everybody knows that verse. They, they usually don't know anything else about it. Um, so in that, in that context, uh, Jesus is having this conversation with some of the Jews who had believed in him, but it's clear that these Jews had not believed in him in a saving way. And he says, um, the truth will set you free. And they respond, well, free? We've never been enslaved to anybody. Don't you know we're offspring of Abraham? Imagine this, you know, kind of chest out here, nose up. We're offspring of Abraham. And he goes into this conversation with him where he ends up saying, listen, you're ethnically offsprings of Abraham, but that doesn't mean Jack. You're not spiritual offsprings of Abraham. In fact, you're offsprings of the devil. That kind of made them very angry. You read John 8 later. Okay, this is at the heart of what Paul is saying here in Colossians chapter 2. Verse 11. So in him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. Another way to say God made that. God did that in your life. How? By putting off the body of the flesh. It's, it's been stripped away. When Jesus saves us, he changes us. And this old self, it's dead. It doesn't matter that we don't sometimes struggle. We give in to sin. We don't battle sin. It doesn't mean we're perfect as Christians. But it means that when this body of the flesh has been put off, we've been given new nature, new desires, new appetites. And they've come from Him. By putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Once again, he's speaking metaphorically, not of this physical circumcision, but of the spiritual thing that's taken place. The circumcision of Christ. Another way you might say that is conversion. It's, it's possible by the circumcision of Christ by the conquering power of Jesus on the cross when he conquered sin, when he conquered death, when he conquered Satan. And then he shifts his thinking between circumcision and baptism. It says in verse 12, having been buried with him in baptism. There is a union that we share with Christ in baptism. Having been buried with him in baptism, in which we're also raised with him through faith. Raised with him through faith. It's an important phrase. And I think it's at this point, at least in my opinion, where I see this shift that 
What once used to be the sign of the covenant people of God, circumcision, has now been replaced with this new thing called baptism. This outward thing, this outward expression, this union with Christ because of the inward change made possible through saving faith in Him. And this is where the ripples begin to occur. Okay, Because the logic among my Presbyterian friends, and I'm sure there's some in here, the logic is if circumcision is the sign of the covenant and the baby boys would receive that, then if baptism has replaced circumcision as the sign of the covenant, then the baby boys and baby girls should also receive the sign of the covenant. And I have friends and well-known Bible teachers, Tim Keller, I have his book on my shelf at home, uh, R.C. Sproul, to name a few, who believe that. Logically, that makes sense, right? If circumcision is the outward sign of the covenant people of God given to the baby boys of ethnic Israel, then if baptism has replaced that, then it should also be given that sign to both the baby boys and baby girls. And logically, that makes sense, but the problem is, is the text. Back to verse 12. Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith. I said that was going to be important. It's important. Because I look at that and I say, okay, that's a logical argument that makes sense, but when I come across this text, I don't see how apart from faith you can have baptism. And I would argue that you can't. You read Romans 6, you read other places. Through faith is is the foundation of baptism. Apart from faith, you don't have baptism. Apart from faith, you're just getting wet. That's it. You're just getting wet apart from faith. Now, my Presbyterian friends would not take it to the extreme. Some of you are like, I don't even know what they believe. They wouldn't say, okay, the little baby is saved. But the my Catholic friends would would have a much different view. And I, I, listen, I, I want to prepare you guys. Some of you are like, oh, I don't even know what these things are. Like, okay. So we're learning the Bible here. We're learning theology. We want to learn. We want to know what we believe. So the Catholic view is very insistent upon infant baptism. Not baptizing infants. Non-baptized infants who die cannot go to heaven within Roman Catholic theology. They believe that baptism in the Latin is ex opero operato. Sounds like something from Harry Potter, right? Ex opero operato. It, it literally means the sacrament works itself. That's the Catholic view of baptism. doesn't matter if there's faith involved. doesn't matter really much at all. You do this thing, the act of baptism itself is like a pipeline that opens up and God's saving grace comes through. Boom, you're saved. Um, I don't think that's right. My opinion should not matter as much as the text. Don't believe something just because I say it, or anybody else. The text, this faith, I see it again and again. I see it in Romans 6. I only got one sermon to preach on baptism, so you can read Romans 6 later. But this through faith, that apart from faith, you don't have baptism. You just have somebody getting wet. That's how baptism works. See, baptism is mainly about Christ. We're going to baptize six dudes later today. It's exciting. And I told each and every one of them, 
your baptism, as exciting as it is, it's not mainly about you. It's mainly about Christ. It's mainly about his life, his death, his burial, his resurrection. Baptism is a dramatization of the gospel. When they're brought underneath the water, there's a picture, right, of Christ being buried in the ground. When they come up out of the water, it's a picture, right, of this resurrected new life. John Piper, he says, don't think small thoughts about baptism. Don't think small thoughts about baptism. When you think about baptism and you think about what's being signified, when a person is buried with him in baptism, and they come up out of the water and they're, they're raised to walk in this new life, don't think small thoughts about baptism. I was, uh, you know, I was at Fort Knox this summer with the army. Um, one of the, the young ladies, I, um, I was her supervisor. She was a, in the process of becoming a chaplain. I was her supervisor. Um, she had a, a United Methodist background. And of course, one of the reasons we go to the lake to baptize is because there's, there's not enough water in there. Okay. I can't get all six guys in there. Okay. Um, and so some of the cadets wanted to be baptized, and I said, well, are you comfortable doing that based on your denominational beliefs? And she said, oh, yeah, it's not a big deal. It's just, you know, it's, I view it kind of as a little Christian little ritual thing. and It's not a little Christian ritual thing. It's not. Like, don't think small thoughts when you think about baptism and what it's signifying. It's mainly a dramatization of the gospel. Say, what, what makes baptism important? Jesus. Jesus makes baptism important. Jesus makes baptism amazing. Without Jesus, you don't have baptism. You have somebody going out and getting wet. Jesus made baptism what it is when he rescued us from the wrath of God. And at that point, people say, wrath of God? I'm unfamiliar with that term. I'm unfamiliar with the first chapter of Romans. Or have you not heard that it was said, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. We have a tendency in this Disneyland version of American Christianity that says God's a loving God, God's a forgiving God, and all the other attributes of God don't really matter because we just want to kind of make it up however it feels or fits best together. And we don't think that he's also a just God who demands a penalty for sin. If he didn't demand a penalty for sin, we don't need Jesus. We don't need a Savior to rescue us from that. But that's the, that's the thinking, right? You know, the thinking today is, well, as long as you're a good person, you follow, you know, your, your own religion as best as you can, like one day, like, you know, God, kill God will work it out. Oh, the conversations that I, that I had this summer. Uh, it's just interesting. And this wrath of God, this justice of God, is a kind of a foreign concept to, to so many people. 
And even especially within this cultural Christianity, which is just very much permeated in this town. You know, people who, they went to summer camp, they, they made some decision of faith when they were 14, but their lives have never changed. Their lives are not marked by continual faith. Their lives are not marked by continual repentance. In fact, you could probably line them up to an unregenerate, unsaved person. You can't tell any difference. There's no change. Jesus is not number one. He's just, you know, a couple memorized answers and facts that they have, you know, that they've shelved away. And, and they've got this, this cultural Christianity thing going on. But he's not number one. That relationship is number one. That, that secret sin is number one. The school, the job, whatever it is. God, he's an afterthought. And the mindset is, well, I'll get to heaven, it'll be okay. And we ignore texts like Matthew 7 and Luke 6 that say, on that day, many will come and say to me, Lord, Lord, and I'm going to say, I don't know you. Why do you call me Lord? I don't know you. Away from me. And they will be cast into hell for all of eternity. I bring that text up at least once a month here because that text should, should scare, honestly, the crap out of you and people that you know. It really should. I mean, that, that text puts real for all of us who are living in this Disneyland version of Christianity. That as long as I just believe the right thing, okay, I'm going to go to heaven. God's going to forgive me. Wrath of God? No. And we, and, we, and we look in the mirror and we have this tendency within American Christianity to just... It's Americans, right? You, you get a trophy for everything. We have this, this view that we look much better than what we really are. Look in the mirror... Yeah, I'm like a day away from Channing Tatum, you know, and, and really it's more like, you know, it's a, a half a day away from Jonah Hill. So um, that's, that's, <laughs> love you, Jonah, if you're listening to this sermon right now out there in Radioland. Um, but that's, that's the tendency that we have. That we're good people, right? That's not what the, the scripture says. Oh, that our lives might be defined not by our preconceived ideas and notions and presuppositions, but that our lives might be defined by this book, this absolute truth. Paul says in Romans chapter 1, verse 30, that we are haters of God. In Romans chapter 5, verse 10, that we're enemies of God. In Romans chapter 8, verse 7, that even our minds are hostile to the things of God, unable to submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. In Romans chapter 3, verse 10 and 11, it says, No one is righteous, no, not one. No one seeks for God. No one understands God. In Isaiah 64, 6, the prophet says, Even our most righteous works are like filthy rags or polluted garments. In the original language, and I promise you, I'm not making this up, this, this filthy rags that Isaiah says our most righteous works are, are rags that women would use to conduct personal hygiene during a certain time of the month. Isaiah effectively is saying the best things you can give to God are like used dirty tampons. See, don't be crass. I'm just breaking down the grammatical structure of the text for you to see the tone that Isaiah would have. That's why I constantly say the message of the gospel is not that you're a good person, that you've got it all figured out. The message of the gospel is that you suck, that we all suck, that we can't do anything to resolve the sin, the rebellion, the hate against a holy God. Only Jesus can. When he came to this earth and he lived the life we could not live and he died the death we should have died and he paid the price we could not afford to pay. That only Jesus can clean us up. Only Jesus can make us have a right standing before the Father. So yeah, when you think about baptism, don't think at little tiny thoughts. 
Jesus made baptism what it is when he rescued us from the wrath of God. And yet, I am still terrified. I remember when I was teaching at LCA, and I was thinking of the statistics that half the kids in my class would not be following God, despite whatever they professed at that time in their life, over half of them, five or ten years from now. This Disneyland of American Christianity, which is all about decision, decision, decision. You make a decision, boom, you're a Christian. Interesting to me, George Whitfield, famous guy, preached during the First Great Awakening. People would come to him. He'd preach to thousands of people. He'd say, Mr. Whitfield, how many people got saved? He'd say, don't know. We'll see you in a couple months. And nobody says that anymore, right? Uh, let me tell you, uh, 364 people got saved. In this papal-like Vatican, boom! You will not see that language in Scripture. Where's the change that occurs in your life? It's not a workspace salvation. I'm not arguing that. My, what I'm arguing is if Jesus saves you, he's going to change you. We're going to go out and we're going to baptize people in a moment. And you're going to hear Pastor Dane, because I've heard him say this every year. He's going to ask them. He's going to say, have you received Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? It's, it's more than iconic. It's, it's biblical. He's going to ask every single person if they've received Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. The problem with so many of us in this cultural Christian world that we live in is, we say, yeah, I've received Jesus. Have you received Jesus? Yeah, yeah, okay, you're a Christian. Uh, yeah, I've received Jesus. And the question is, is, as what? What have you received Jesus as? Oh, yeah, I've received him. As what? As an unwelcome house guest? Who's an inconvenient afterthought to that girlfriend, to that boyfriend, to that job, to that career, to that academic semester, to that intramural sports team? How, how have you received him? Like as the plumber who comes over to your house, you're like, can you just hurry up and get out of the way? Just, just, just stay over there. Just, you're interrupting my life. And he's not number one in your life. He's not your greatest treasure. The question is, have you received Jesus as as what? Well, the answer is this. As what he is. Have you received Jesus as what he actually is? So, well, what, what, what is he? Well, it doesn't matter what you think he is. What matters is what God says he is. Have you received Jesus Christ as John 6? With the Samaritan woman, he tells her, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry. Whoever drinks from me will never go thirsty. He tells Martha after her brothers just died in John 11, he says, Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. When he's talking to Thomas in John 14, and Thomas is all worried, and the disciples, he's leaving us. He says, Thomas, I am the way and the truth and the life. Thomas, you can't come to the Father unless you come to me. What does it mean to receive Jesus unless you answer that question as what? And the answer is, as who he is. As Lord and Savior. And we love to separate that Lord and Savior. A Savior, Savior, right? Nothing has to change in my life. He's Savior. He's not Lord. Oh, for those of you who've received Jesus, but not in a saving way, not in an effectual way, and you're sitting here and you're like, yeah, that's might be me. I would call you. I would urge you to repent. God, I want, I need you. I need you to be not just my Savior. I need you to be my Lord. I need you to be the bread of life, living water, the resurrection and the life, the way, the truth. So yeah, 
baptism's kind of a big deal. Don't think small thoughts about baptism. Think big thoughts. Think gigantic thoughts. Because baptism is mainly about Christ. I'm going to pray. God, we love you. We love you, Lord, and we thank you for who you are. Not who we think you are, but who you actually are. What the scriptures say about you. God, I pray for those of us in here who, man, we, we're not sold out to you. You're not our Lord. You're not our Savior. We say, yeah, we call you Lord, but we've never actually received you as Lord and Savior. We've never actually received you as who you actually are. We know some verses. We know the taglines. But you're not king of our world. We're king of our own world. I pray that you would be our greatest treasure. Above anything or anyone else. Holy Spirit, I pray that you'd break our pride, that you'd convict us of areas where you have not ruled as Lord and Savior in our lives, and that you'd make us more like your Son. In your name we pray, amen.